This week on Oh My Darlin, we are talking about the importance of mentoring in your hobbies, mentoring in your community, mentoring through your job, as well as the impact that mentoring can have for you. Disney drama, because Disney seems to always be in a little bit of drama. And ending this episode, of course, with Georgia on my mind with our first of the seven Natural Wonders of Georgia. Stay tuned and keep listening if you want to hear more. Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling, Davis. You are listening to my podcast. Oh, my darling, Davis. For this kind of main topic of episode three, we're going to talk about mentoring, which is all around us. By definition, mentoring, it's a verb, and it's essentially to advise or to train someone, especially a younger colleague. So I think I'm going to start out with just telling you a couple of good stats to really inform you and just kind of prove that mentoring is important. And this comes from the McCarthy Mentoring from May of 2017. And it said, 71% of Fortune 500 companies have mentoring programs. Why? Because investing in leadership capability pays off in performance, productivity, and innovation. Another study showed that 25% of employees who enroll in a mentoring program had a salary grade change compared to only 5% of workers who did not participate. Mentees are promoted five times more than those are not me- those who are not in a mentoring program. And then last, what the last one I'll do is from the Harvard Business Review of 2015. It said 84% of mentors had helped mentees avoid costly mistakes. 84 became proficient in their roles quicker, and 69% of them were making better decisions thanks to their mentors. And of course, I mean, that absolutely makes sense. You see that time and time again in the workplace where your mentor, if you can get a mentor, they, of course, are going to help you grow and help challenge you and to help you develop skills that you might not have had in that job. So, of course, you're going to get a pay grade, a pay raise because they see the work you're doing. They see that your mentor has helped you and they realize the potential that you have to do better in the company to move up. And for example, I actually work at a private resort down here in St. Simons and we have a program that helps develop leadership skills in our our coworkers. So they go to this like, I think it's like a three month program where they're working in teams to develop these skills to really hone in on who they are as a person, what their leadership capabilities look like. And then what happens is they get in this little group and they create a or they use a project, a, a real life type of scenario and try to come up with a solution for it. And they're partnered with, you know, the, the administrators of different departments on our um, at our resort. So they get more experience and they get a different perspective because they have a mentor that's maybe, either, you know, the director of the spa or the director of the activities, director of golf or whatever the case may be. They're able to see that other side that different viewpoint rather than the mentee, I should say, has a narrow viewpoint because they only see the aspect of what they're doing. But when they're mentored by somebody who's got more experience, 
who has seen a couple more years or seen some more types of scenarios, it educates them. And of course, they're going to get a pay raise because they're working with somebody who's already a higher up. And that's going to affect their job performance. And when that performance increases, their productivity, their innovation, it will pay off. And to connect those statistics, let's talk about some amazing partnerships of mentors to mentees. And I'm not talking about Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. I'm talking about real life mentors that obviously helped this mentee change the game. My first example, probably one of the best, maybe earliest examples. I mean, it's 400 BC. It's Socrates to Plato and then Plato to Aristotle. I mean, you can just recognize the names and you don't need a philosophy book to understand that they were both pillars of Greek philosophy and the bedrock essentially to what modern philosophers pretty much think about on the daily basis that keeps them up at night. Despite the popularity of Socrates today, there's no records of his writings before his death, but he's credited as the founder of Western philosophy. Everything we learn about Socrates, excuse me, was pretty much through the works of his followers and his students. And that's essentially where his mentee Plato comes in. He's regarded as one of the best disciples of Socrates. And some of the best, you know, ideas, philosophies from Socrates' work were accounted through the writings of Plato. So essentially, I mean, Socrates kind of passed that baton to Plato and Plato took it the next thousands of miles. He did more, excuse me, Plato did more contributing to Western philosophy and then laid the foundations of science and mathematics. He then pretty much did what Socrates did for him. He passed the baton on to the next generation of philosophers. He founded the first institution of higher learning in the Western world, the Academy of Athens, and then passed the torch on to Aristotle, kind of the next baton holder for philosophy into the modern world. And thank goodness he did, because after um, Aristotle enrolled in Plato's um, school at about 17 or 18 years old, He was a student there until he was 37 years old, and he is now known as the father of Western philosophy. His teachings served as some of the first comprehensive systems of Western philosophy, and he truly deserves it because his ability to kind of surpass just philosophy, his ideas went into poetry. They went into science and linguistics, politics, government, and economics. My next example is going to be more um, more kind of entertainment heavy with J.J. Uh, Abrams being mentored by Steven Spielberg. Now, these two are big, big movie names. I mean, Steven Spielberg was, he's an American film director, producer, screenwriter. You will know him for Jaws in 1975. He created that summer blockbuster. Then he did Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Jurassic Park. I mean, you name it, he has probably made or he's probably um, been the filmmaker or director and producer on these works. Then you've got J.B.J. Abrams. He's also an American filmmaker. He produced the movies regarding Henry, Forever Young, Armageddon, Cloverfield, Star Trek, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Thank goodness we had J.J. Abrams because he pretty much saved the last three movies for Star Wars. We'll get into that later, but just to kind of give you an idea of the two directors. Now, 
J.J. Abrams has talked about how he pretty much got really, really lucky with having Steven Spielberg as his mentor. And he really talked about how he was lucky enough to have Steven Spielberg as his mentor and his confidant. And, and just the fact that he was able to, I think he got an internship with him. It's obvious that his mentoring of J.J. Abrams has really helped in his career. Even in this interview, Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg talked about how he loves to get back in other ways. He gives back. He's helped mentor young directors like Robert Zemeckis, J.J. Abrams. He acts as a sounding board for them, as well as other directors looking just for creative advice. I mean, this is the man who did The Schindler's List, Jaws, I mean, Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, just classics, household movies that we all know and love. Of course, we need mentors like him to give back to this next generation of directors that really, truly need guidance to create amazing films for us. My last and probably final example is Steve Jobs really becoming a mentor for Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, you need people that are like-minded, that are trying to pave the way for new and innovative ideas. And I think this is a great example of that. I mean, you got Steve Jobs, who was the founder of Apple, which is now a powerhouse. Uh, you know, it's just everybody knows exactly what Apple is. And, and so, of course, when you're a young Mark Zuckerberg who's trying to create a new social platform, a, a platform where people can connect across the world, across, you know, the country of different states, different people, different generations. You need somebody that's on your level like Steve Jobs to help guide you into forming a new company that's young and creative and looking to change the game. So that's one of the most successful entrepreneur mentor mentee example I have is Steve Jobs, again, helping the Facebook founder, Mark Zuckerberg, during the early years of his company. Even Zuckerberg says that when he went to meet with Steve Jobs, he said that to reconnect with what I believe was the mission of the company, I should go visit this temple in India that he had gone to early in the evolution of Apple. He was thinking about what his future vision wanted to be, and that's where he went. And even after Steve Jobs' passing, Zuckerberg thanked him for his mentorship. He said, Steve, thank you for being a mentor and a friend. Thanks for showing me that what you can build can change the world. I will miss you. And although some of us will not have mentorships like Steve Jobs as your mentor, you can still find a quality mentor simply by asking and showing ambition. I say these statistics, I give these examples to go into kind of my examples of what mentoring has really looked at like for me throughout the years. And pretty much to me, mentoring is being able to utilize your skills, your hobbies, your passions, your job to educate the next group of people that are going to do the same thing you do. For example, my number one kind of mentoring example I have is becoming a volleyball coach for my old JV um, team. So for my old high school, my, um, my former coach invited me to come back after I graduated from college to be our JV volleyball coach. And at first, I was really hesitant because I had just been coaching a club, a travel ball team that ended very poorly, that the end of the year was just not not what I ex expected. We just had a huge kind of issue at the very end of the season kind of come to a head. It was not good. It was just very embarrassing and changed me in a lot of different ways. But with volleyball, to me, it had always been a huge backbone. It brought me my closest friends. It taught me so many life skills and helped develop me into a well-rounded individual. But for me, I couldn't have gone back and coached 
without thinking of all of the skills and assets and things my mentors taught me, Coach K, Coach Miranda, Coach Steve, Coach Craig, even Coach Marlene, all of these coaches gave me a lot of insight on the game, but also how to be the best coach that you can be. I'm going to give you a couple just examples, some good things about being a mentor, some bad things. So here we go. So when I wanted to become a coach or when I became a coach, I wanted to take all these good parts of what my mentors, my coaches had taught me. I mean, Coach K taught me about discipline, passion. Coach Miranda taught me about integrity. Coach Steve and Coach Craig, they were just, you know, they gave us a whole different attitude because they were guys teaching girls how to play the game. We were tough. We knew how we could win. We won with Coach Craig and Coach Steve when we were 16 years old. I think we won six tournaments in a row, six tournaments that we won gold every single time. I mean, it was the best club year we had ever had and we just were tough you know we we got out on the court we you know busted our tails to do the best that we could do so we could bring home that gold with coach Marina and coach K they were my school coaches so they couldn't be as tough on us they couldn't be as kind of under our skin as coach Steve and coach Craig but they were still able to instill some some other aspects of the game. I still remember coach K. I loved her so much. She was so passionate. She's like 6 foot 4 from Texas. Of course I love that cuz that's big personality. She's southern. She's going to tell you how it is and with me just joining volleyball, I'd only been playing it for 2 years. She really really (laughs) kind of opened my eyes to what volleyball could do and could bring me as well as how it could help me be a better person. And so Coach K, I still remember one time she was teaching me how to play or be a libero um, and play middle back. And middle back's a really tough position. It is not easy. You have so much ground to cover. And one time in our drill, she was standing right behind me. She was holding my shirt, the back of my shirt. And she'd say, okay, darling, okay, okay, here you go. Go to this spot. Here we go. See where this hole is? See where this is? And she would yank my shirt and she would kind of do the position with me. And after a while, after I understood what she was showing me, what she was teaching me, I realized, I was like, okay, okay, I see what you're saying, coach. And she let me go, right? And it's almost like a parent, you know, they they are going to show you what you need to do, how you need to do something, and then they ha- they just let go, and you don't even realize that you're doing it. Like riding a bike, you know, they're like, okay, you got this, you're pedaling, pedal harder, pedal harder, and you're like, mom, don't let go. And then you realize that you're biking and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm actually doing it. I'm doing it. And by the time you're down the hill or down the road, you realize that your parent has actually let you go and let you do this on your own. And that's how Coach K was. She was just like a, a parent figure, figure, excuse me. She had that mentality of, you're going to be right here with me. I'm going to show you how to do this. And then I'm going to slowly back away and let you and give trust back to you to remember what I've taught you and do it. I still remember when I um, she taught me integrity. She and Coach Miranda, uh, we played Lee County a lot. And they, <laughs> it, um, I do not like Lee County. I'm just going to go out and say it. Veterans people will know exactly what I'm talking about. My friends, my girls have played volleyball with me because we just had a lot of beef with them, a lot of drama. We went and played them once and we lost. So they all acted like they were a war hawk and they were standing in a line and they had one girl, excuse me, they had one girl acting like a war hawk, which was our, our mascot. 
And they all stood in a line and they acted like they shot her down and shot the bird down like us. They were defeating us. It was just so stupid. But I remember when I was in eighth grade playing for the JV team, one of the managers was kind of like coercing me to pick a fight with a softball girl from Lee County. And I almost did. Like we almost got in a fight just because I was being told that that was something that was cool and I could do it and why not do it. So my coaches sat me down. (laughs) I still remember sitting on Coach Rana's futon. And she was just like, I'm so disappointed in you. I don't understand what could possess you as somebody that should have integrity. And our motto was like, excellence is the standard, not the goal. We demand excellence. And this was not anything of the sort. So Coach K and Coach Miranda sat down, told me all that, and really made me understand that if you're going to be on our team, you have to have character. You have to lose with pride. You have to win with humility. And although you have an attitude, you got to really suppress that if you're going to want to stay on this team. So I had to sit the bench for a couple games and I learned my lesson real quick. I still had attitude here and there, but it was attitude that I channeled into winning again, winning with humility and losing with integrity. So I, I, they just such great mentors for me. So moving into this next bit of information, I think The reason they were such good mentors is because in all of those examples, they were training me, motivating me. They were giving me advice, helping me to succeed, teaching me how to set our goals, supporting me, cheering me on, and then coaching me in the correct direction that I needed to go. So when I became a coach, I wanted to take those good pieces. I wanted to be tough like Coach Steve. I wanted to be defensively minded like Coach Craig. I wanted to you know, think about the importance of having a great setter and hitters like Coach Miranda, but then be that kind of like guiding hand like Coach K was. She just was there for us and she was like a parent figure. So I took all those pieces and when I became a coach, I implemented them and I had some good, good, I mean, amazing times with those girls at Veterans. It was absolutely wonderful. But I did have some bad experiences in my own mind, in my own self, because as a coach, I was young. So I did make mistakes here and there. And that's what being a mentor is all about. You know, it's about understanding your girls, understanding that the your mentees, you should I should say, understanding them, making some changes, making your choices, and then understanding that if it backfires, how would I change that? Or if it goes great, how could I do it again? That's really what's the most important thing about being a mentor. So here are some good and some bad examples of what being a mentor for volleyball was for me. The first one is obviously like feeling of success, that gratification you get when your pupil, your your mentee learns something and you see it happen. For me, that was really simple because I would teach them how to do something. My, my, my volleyball girls, my JV, teach them how to pass, how to serve, how to do this, how to do that. It's really easy to do that because you can teach them so many skills and then you see them perfected on the court. And it just, it's instant gratification, especially when we had actually lost to Hoko three times throughout the season, three times. And Every time we lost, we would get better and better. We were so close to beating them. But when it mattered the most, which was for the county championship, we beat them in their own house. And it was because of the girls. They learned exactly what they needed to do. They, By the end of our season, we knew exactly what that team was, who that team was, how they played, and how we needed to react 
so that we could win, and we did. We brought home the county championship back to veterans after they beat us and and broke our eight-year streak. So it's just instant gratification, you know, to see them succeed through something that you taught them. Another great thing is obviously bonding. You know, being a mentor is about bonding with somebody. And I I had so many opportunities riding the bus with the girls, having like after-school snack kind of parties, just playing games with them. Practices too. We had some great times and even playing on tournaments. Those moments are things I will cherish forever and I hope that they cherish as well because that's the whole point of being a mentor is to bond with somebody where you understand them as a person, as a player, and you have more kind of like a lifelong bond. You know, I feel like one day, hopefully I've encouraged them. I've taught them enough that one day they could be coaches for for veterans. They could be, you know, the, the person that I call on one day to come coach for me somewhere or come help me do this or coach Marlene wants them to be a coach for that's what the whole that's what the whole thing is about is making them love the sport making them love the game but then hopefully they'll get that that passion and bring it back to veterans or back to you know their life and again with bonding with them those memories that you create from being their support system their cheerleader are what you'll cherish forever as a mentor. Some of the only bad things about being a mentor is kind of when your mentoring collides with your hobbies. I still remember when we played Hoko, I had taught, I had coached some of those club girls and I had known some of those girls. So it's hard to separate your personal life from your mentorship. So when we played Hoko, I mean, that's our, not our enemy, but we're rivals. We're not, you know, I don't want to support them, but at the end of the day, I, I, they're my girls. I I coach them. I feel for them. So I'm still going to tell them, Hey, you need to change your approach. You need to be a little more flexible. And I did that one time. I walked right up to Kinley and I told her, Hey, like you did, he had a great game, but, uh, and I know you play for Hoko. I know I'm not your coach, but you need to work on your defense. Cause honey, like your footwork, or your approach, your footwork looked atrocious. Like, think about that next game. And then what happened? Her footwork looked amazing. So you're never not going to be their coach. So it's hard, again, to coach them, but know that it might go against your other friends or go against the, the team that you coach for or the people that you support. You just have to make sure that you're kind of separating, you know, your hobbies and your mentees with your personal life. Another thing that I ran into from being a mentor for these girls, they're not much younger than me. So when I was a JV coach, I was 22, and they're probably about 14 or 15, maybe 16. So it was kind of hard. Sometimes they had some trouble separating the fun darling side, like the, oh my gosh, she's so fun. This is great. Like, I want her to be my friend versus the I'm your coach. I'm telling you what to do. I'm an adult. Like, you're going to listen to what I say and you're going to respect it. So sometimes the respect was lacking because I was younger. And I even had that problem with parents um, as a young coach, as a young mentor. Even parents will have issues with that. They'll say, well, you're young. You don't know what you're talking about. But that's really when you just have to get some support from other coaches. Like my assistant coach was my former club coach. And he supported me in every one of my decisions. And it's important to have that support system for you. Because when you're the mentor, when you're a mentee becoming a mentor, there are always people that are going to try and take you down a notch. They're going to try and take you off your pedestal. But you really still have to go back to your mentor and say, hey, like, did I do this right? Do you think this was a good decision? And they can give you some really good advice that's actually meaningful because 
no offense, but parents are always going to be biased. You know, you're always going to be biased towards your child, towards your, you know, person that you're supporting. So you just really have to go back to your mentor and say, hey, did I, and I did that a lot with Coach Steve. I was like, hey, do you think I should have done this rotation? And sometimes he was like, absolutely, that was great. And other times he was like, oh, heck no, that was an absolute horrible decision. Here's what I would have done differently. And that's the only person that really matters. That's the person you need to listen to is the people that truly have the 20 plus years of experience that then you can instill in that next group of people that you're mentoring. I mean, at the end of the day, the most important aspect of being a coach, truly being a sports coach and mentoring this group, this next generation of sports athletes is the fact that mentoring is in all of your actions. It's in all of the small things, whether you're, you know, just teaching them footwork or maybe you're taking them out to go to Rigsby's or to taking them out to go to different like arcade to have fun as a group to establish team bonding. Every action that you do has an equal and opposite reaction. I mean, it's a ripple effect that can really impact generations to come. So I think that's what's really important. Some other ways that I'm a mentor, um, or at least I feel like I'm a mentor, is also in pageants. You're competing and coaching. You can still be so much of an impact for other young ladies that that need that encouragement, that need that direction. Because at the end of the day for me, I was in their exact shoes. When I was you know, 10 years old or really 13 years old competing for Miss America, for Miss Georgia, outstanding teen, I I was in that same position. You know, I needed guidance. I needed coaches to help tell me what I needed to wear, what I needed to do. And yes, sometimes you need to take it as a grain of sand or a grain of salt, however that saying goes. But other times, I mean, my mentors were like coach, not coach, but some of my mentors were former Miss Georgia's you know, former competitors. It just makes the most sense. They understand the game, so they're going to help you coach, help coach you and, and advise you in the correct direction. Addie Hampton, one of the first outstanding teen winners in Georgia. She was, I think, one of the winners before they even named it Miss Georgia's Outstanding Teen. So they have experience. They know what it's like to compete on the stage, what it's like to decide your song, to decide your dress. And with Addie, she had a lot of marketing experience as well, a lot of public relations experience. So she helped teach me who I am, helped show me, not teach me, she helped show me who I am as a brand, as a person to guide me in the correct direction of competing in Miss Georgia for my first time. Other ways that I have been a mentor would have to be through, you know, my job. Now, you know, I'm new to the hospitality industry. So when I first started, I really looked for guidance to Miss Lene and Miss Mama Kim is what I call her. But they helped teach me how to really be my best on the phone, how to do my best, how to sell, you know, become a better salesperson, really, and to sell the experience. My manager and my boss helped me really and truly become who I am now. I've been like the top in sales for these past three months, really loved kind of competing against myself to be the best, but it helped to have those people guide me in the right direction to guide me into this path of, yes, it's hospitality. Yes, you're in a call center. You're answering phones all day, helping people plan their vacations that you probably would want to be on, but you're helping another person plan that vacation. Yes, there's no really good way to describe it, but essentially, yeah, you're planning people's vacations and although you would really want to be on them how can we make you the best version 
of a salesperson for Sea Island as we can. So it's thanks to Lene and Mama Kim and Kelly and Ben who really helped me shine and helped me find my my kind of way of presenting the information, selling and booking people, booking clients for their vacations here to St. Simons, to Sea Island. I've really enjoyed it. And now I feel it's my job to help other people. So we actually had a, a young lady who transferred into our department. And when we were actually in the office, I tried to help her as much as possible. You know, people went out of their way to help me. So I go out of my way to help her. That's just kind of the the point is to learn, be the best you can be, and then teach others what you've learned. That's what mentoring is all about. And so I try to do that as much in my job, as well as when you're serving your community and volunteering. I volunteered for the Alzheimer's Association for a long, long time. When I was Miss Warner Robbins, I did so many different outreach activities and programs, and I made a lot of connections along the way. And then after I connected my connections. Like you have to network with other people and then to become a mentor and to help others, you have to kind of place them, put them in the best spotlight, put them in the best situation for them and give them advice to really to really achieve that that goal. And that's another thing with volleyball. Sorry to bring that back, but as I sat down with my girls and I said, here are my top three goals. Number one is to win the county championship. Number two is to develop your skills for varsity and for college. And number three was to win a certain percentage of all of our games. So that those, I set my goals for them. And then I set like little mini goals for each girl. And then that's how we went along. That's how I tried to set up success for my JV team. But anyway, there as a volunteer for my community, you know, I've learned a lot in Alzheimer's. I've learned a lot at the Little League World Series. I've learned a lot in the places that I volunteered. So, of course, if another volunteer comes along or if somebody else comes along that needs guidance, that needs some help, I have no problem lending a hand. I mean, at, at on one side, mentoring is about sharing information that you have. And on the other, mentoring is also leading by example and volunteering your time to gain perspective, to gain experience and share that with someone else. By volunteering, by serving your community, you're going to be a mentor to other people. I mean, you're going to have experiences where you're going to educate and inform as well as volunteer and connect with other people. I mean, we're going to get into community service and volunteering later in another episode, but I mean, that's one of the greatest ways that you can become a good mentor is connecting with people in your community. All right. So for this next little topic, last week on our first episode, excuse me. So two weeks ago, I published my first episode and I kind of gave you some ideas and activities that you can do for um, for July 4th. One of the, my best recommendations was watching Hamilton, which was uh, displaying on Disney Plus on July 3rd. I mean, what a perfect time for you to go watch Hamilton and, and have a great time doing so and learning a little bit about American history on July 4th. Like, that's just perfect. And yet, we still get backlash from people who want to boycott Hamilton. I just, I, I can't understand it. The show which was just insanely popular 2015 and 2016 kind of when it debuted on Broadway I mean I still remember people were buying the tickets and they were selling out like crazy but what I just don't get 
I mean, I just don't understand why we have this criticism. I understand it, but I don't. So here's my kind of viewpoint on it. Lin-Manuel Miranda is getting criticism and some heat online because he wrote and starred in the play, which is about Alexander Hamilton, you know, one of the founding fathers of, of America. And he was he's being criticized because there's a lot of different characters in the play that were slave owning characters in the past, like George, excuse me, like George Washington, like Alexander Hamilton. I mean, a lot of our founding fathers owned slaves and and used them as slaves or indentured servants because most of them were from like Virginia and kind of the southern states where a lot of crops and farming was just high in demand. And I think with this play, Lin-Manuel Miranda does a pretty good job kind of identifying identifying that that they owned slaves and that they weren't able to eradicate slavery in the beginning when we, you know, kind of when we declared our independence from Britain. And and Lin-Manuel Miranda, he points that out in various points in the play. He talks about it when he calls out Jeff- Thomas Jefferson in Act Two. But unfortunately, it takes a backseat in terms of the other aspects in Hamilton's life. But Lin-Manuel Miranda actually tweeted about it. He did say that he appreciates, you know, the viewpoints and understands that all of the criticisms are valid. But the sheer tonnage of complexities and failings of these people, he couldn't really truly get in a two and a half hour musical. I mean, he wrestled with those ideas, but he had to, at the end, cut it. He took six years and fit as much, he, he took six years of information and fit as much as he could in a two and a half hour musical. He did his best and it's all fair game pretty much. And I understand that. But my only kind of dispute to why people are against Hamilton in 2020, I understand this, you know, Black Lives Matter movement is is really picking up again. It's really coming and hitting us, knocking us right on the front door. It's like here. And we do have to change. We have to fight for equality. But if we wanted to eradicate this type of stereotype, this, you know, negative stigma, where were the cancel culture haters in 2016 when Lin-Manuel Miranda published this Broadway play, I mean, musical? People were lining up at the door just to see it, just to get tickets to go see it. Yet in 2020, it's like, now we care about it. Now we have to cancel it. Now we have to demand that Disney remove it from the platform. Where were they in 2016, 2015, when the play, I mean, nothing has changed about the play. It's the same cast, same music numbers, same choreography. Yet we didn't see as much hate. We didn't say any hate. We saw only love for this musical, for how popular. My mom and I watched it this weekend. Again, I watched it for a second time. She watched it the first time. She absolutely loved it. She thought it was absolutely amazing. And I think it's just so hard for me as someone who voices their opinions and voices their concerns for things. I mean, I'm. if you know me, you know I am openly able to speak my mind, speak my truth You as you as I will, uh, and I will, right? I'm able to speak my truth, and I do it on multiple occasions. But that's why I kind of see through this, because if you truly were against this musical and its portrayal of our founding fathers who owned slaves, I mean, they did. It's not, it's a fact. 
then where were you in 2016 when he published it on Broadway? That's my tea. That's all I got for that, <laughs> for Disney's debacle. I'm glad they haven't taken it down because it is amazing, truly. It is a work of art. Lin-Manuel Miranda does an amazing job portraying the history and making it interesting. Some of the music um, choices, some of those songs were just blech, meh. But it's awesome. It's just so hip. It's so popular. It's so in tune with what we need to learn and how we can learn it. I mean, I would love to see this be acquired when we're learning about American history. I'd love to see our teachers play this instead of playing, you know, some other type of movie. I don't think anything could educate us as much as a two and a half hour musical from Lin-Manuel Miranda. So now that we're kind of over the drama for this episode, I promise we're kind of done with drama. For the next seven weeks, the uh, Georgia On My Mind segment is going to be devoted to the seven natural wonders of Georgia. Now, I know that during this time of COVID, it's a little difficult to travel, to go places, to really experience all that our states have to offer. But for people that are kind of living in the South nearby, maybe you live in Georgia, maybe you live in Tennessee or South Carolina, Florida, Alabama, although I will say Florida, kind of stay down there, okay? Y'all y'all got a lot of COVID cases. I think 15,000 were documented in a day. So y'all might need to just stay in Florida and quarantine. But if you're living nearby, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the seven natural wonders of Georgia. So the seven natural wonders of Georgia are kind of like a play on the seven natural wonders of the world. And in 1926, um, the first list of natural wonders was, was compiled by a state librarian. Her na- name was Ella Mae Thornton, and she published in the Atlanta Georgian Magazine the first list. And those included Amicaloa Falls, Jekyll Islands Forest, the Marble Vein in Long Swamp Valley in Pickens County, the Okefenokee Swamp, Stone Mountain, Tallulah Gorge, and Warm Springs. And from that list, we've kind of redone the list. And the true seven natural wonders of Georgia are now considered to be, which a couple of them are from the original list, but it's Amicalola Falls, the Okefenokee Swamp, Providence Canyon, Radium Springs, Stone Mountain, Tallulah Gorge, and Warm Springs. And if you're from this area, or maybe you're just from the South, or you're from America, Anywhere. You probably recognized a couple of these. Stone Mountain's very popular. Warm Springs is popular just from their history, their historical standpoint. So we're going to talk about these for the next couple of weeks. But first, we're going to start with Amicalola Falls State Park. Let me go ahead and just get a little sip of some Coke. (laughs) Refreshing. Yeah, my mom and I went to Pizza Inn here in St. Simons. And they kind of mix up our order. So we got some Coke, but that's so fitting. I mean, Coca-Cola is a staple of Georgia, started in Atlanta. So I thought that'd be perfect for this segment. We're not going to go into Coca-Cola now, although I would love to because it's got a lot of great history. Maybe we'll save that for, for next time on Georgia on my mind. But Amicalola Falls um, State Park and Lodge is an 829-acre Georgia State Park. It's located kind of in the northern part of Georgia, around Dahlonega, Ella J., and Dawsonville, which is why I say if you're from Tennessee, you could always just come drive down and visit Amicola Falls. The name of the park is derived from a Cherokee language, and that word, 
Amicalola means tumbling waters. The park is home, obviously, to Amicalola Falls, which is a 729-foot waterfall. It's the highest waterfall in all of Georgia. And it's kind of funny because if you've ever been to the seventh, this seventh natural wonder of Georgia, if you've ever been to Amicalola Falls, you will understand the pain of the long staircase that it takes to go all the way up and all the way down this beautiful waterfall. It is gorgeous, but it is literally like a workout. You know, you really have to go down all those stairs, <laughs> all up and down to see the true beauty of Amicalola Falls. The word, again, Amicalola, is roughly derived from the Cherokee dialect, dialect, excuse me, that roughly translates to tumbling water. The first account of the falls was actually written by William Williamson Williamson in 1832. He was exploring the area while seeking land to claim in the 6th Georgia land lottery. And he pretty much just described this amazing waterfall, this beautiful Amicalola Falls, which again, 100 years later would become one of Georgia's seven natural wonders. In 1852, a man named Bartley Crane settled near the base of the falls and owned several hundreds of acres in the area, including the falls. And then, uh, of course, along the creek, which is now called Visitor Center, Crane ran a corn and flour mill. And as in 1860, as more settlers moved to the area, a campground was established near the base of the falls, which was used for religious revivals. During the Civil War, the campground was reportedly used by both Confederate and the Union forces. The mill along the creek went unscathed during the war through Bartley's son. And then John Hunter Crane opened a general store that operated in that area throughout the Great Depression. Crane's lands were eventually sold to the state of Georgia in 1940, and the land was designated as a state park thereafter, making Amicalola Falls Georgia's 12th state park. At the time of its inception, it at the time of the park's inception, um, the Appalachian Trail actually went through the park, but in 1950s, it was diverted due to concerns of commercialization near Ogle, near Oglethorpe Mountain. The park now features an approach trail for the uh, Appalachian Trail through hikers as a route through the pathway. So there is a nice little pathway that somewhat... Um, connects. There's like a kickoff for that every spring. So again, as the unofficial start of the Appalachian Trail, uh, more than 2,500 hikers begin their trek there in the Amicalola State Park every year. There's like a trailhead right behind the visitor center, which is marked by a stone, and it's become an iconic symbol for experienced trekkers <laughs> and weekend um, kind of travelers that come through. At the end of the day, Amicalola Falls the state park is one of five of Georgia's state parks with lodging and a restaurant. And it's the only state park that offers a public birds of prey program. The lodge has 57 guest rooms and conference facilities, while the park features cabins as well as RV and tent camping. Many visitors, again, if you go, I mean, many visitors decide if they want to stay on site just due to the quality of the lodge, the cabin, and the campsite facilities. The Georgia Mountain Resort is also a popular location for destination weddings and is a premier base for fall foliage and sightseeing. And this is all information that is on the Emicolola Fall 
fallslodge.com. So if you any if you want to find out more about the accommodations, dining, any adventures, photos, anything like that in terms of Amicalilla Falls, you can always go to their website, amicalillafallslodge.com and find that information. But that pretty much wraps up the R segment of Georgia on my mind. And if you made it this far, you know the drill. Always um, thank you so much for listening, of course. You know, this has kind of just been really fun for me. It's just a way for me to, again, utilize my communications degree to really express myself through um, just talking about things I love, volleyball, pageants, Georgia, some great things that I really enjoy and I want to bring some joy into your life. So if you could subscribe to this channel, of course, give it a five-star rating. And of course, if you always want to give your opinion, tell me how I can do better or anything, really, you can follow me on Instagram. My um, handle is O-M-Y, so O-H-M-Y dot Darlin. That's me on Instagram. My personal is Darlin J. Davis. And then I also have a website and it's darlinjdavis.com. There's a whole podcasting page and you can send submissions into that whole page. You can always comment and tell me how I can do better, what things you want to hear about, what content or topics you'd rather hear about. And, and things that you'd like for me to cover in this next week's episode, as well as just give me some feedback because my uncle um, told me that my audio sounded a little little funky last week. So I'll work on that. And I thank you so much for that, that uh, suggestion. And I really, really is so helpful because obviously when starting a podcast, you don't have all the answers really from your audience of what they'd like to hear as well as what they'd like you to fix. So I'm glad we've got some, at least our first suggestion. So if you have any, message me on Instagram, send me a little email on my website, and I'd be more than happy to answer your questions, talk about it next week on the podcast. Any guests you'd like to have on, I'll try to, you know, invite some people and have them on the podcast, as well as just suggestions. I mean, I'm so open to constructive criticism. That's kind of one of my things. I love to hear what you've got to say, your opinions, and then of course share them and make this podcast better but you have a wonderful rest of your day wonderful rest of your week and look forward to having you at the next one 